check out my new book, Coping Courageously, a heart-centered guide for navigating a loved one's illness without losing yourself. It's appropriate for you as a clinician, for your patients, and for anyone you know who has a seriously ill loved one or an aging parent. Check it out and tell a friend. Welcome to the Integrative Palliative Podcast. I'm Dr. Delia Caramonti, an integrative palliative medicine physician. If you are a physician or other healthcare provider passionate about taking care of people with serious or chronic illness, you are in the right place. Our motto is whole person care for people with serious illness using all the tools that work. Welcome, integrative palliative people. Today, we're going to talk about anxiety and specifically the integrative approach to managing anxiety. So first, let's talk briefly about how anxiety presents. Sometimes people will say, I'm feeling anxious, but that's definitely not the only way that anxiety presents. Sometimes people will present saying that they're fatigued or they can't sleep or they have somatic symptoms like chest pain or palpitations or their stomach doesn't feel right. Sometimes it presents with kind of an agitated behavior like tapping your foot all the time or being grumpy. Sometimes it's trouble concentrating that people will notice or kind of like a sticky brain where something that didn't used to bother you just can't let it go. You know, your wife threw out your favorite sweatshirt, even though it had rips in it, you loved it and you just can't get over the fact that she would do that. Sometimes that can be anxiety. Sometimes hypervigilance shows up, particularly if somebody has a history of post-traumatic stress disorder or multiple, even little T traumas, smaller traumas. Sometimes hypervigilance of like someone touches you and you jump or you hear a noise and you go, what's that? Having an increased startle response. All of these can be manifestations of anxiety. I do want to say that I kind of hate this word, anxiety, because it doesn't really mean anything. We use it sometimes to mean worry, but worry is a little bit different, and it can be related to anxiety for sure. But this word anxiety manifests often in the body. Even if a person doesn't feel worried, they may have what we call anxiety in the body, which is basically an activated stress response. So the activated stress response can come from worry, but it can come from all kinds of other things too. So let's talk for a second about the very, very simple neurobiology of anxiety. And there probably are three parts of the brain that are most interesting, in my opinion, when we talk about anxiety. And the first is the hippocampus, which, as you probably know, is in charge of memory. But that includes memory of danger, like something bad happened when we went over there. So let's remember that that happened so we don't go over there again. The next interesting part of the brain related to anxiety is the prefrontal cortex, which is the frontal problem-solving part of the brain, and it can help modulate the fear response, meaning that if you hear a big noise and you're startled and you jump, the prefrontal cortex can say, that was just a truck, don't worry about it. And then that can help suppress the amygdala who was getting really agitated and scared. So we can have an instant fear response, and then the prefrontal cortex can tell us why, oh, don't worry about it, it's fine, that's just a whatever. So the third part of the brain that is very involved in anxiety is the amygdala. And the amygdala is in charge of emotion. It's like the little tantruming part of the brain that's in charge of fear and shame and rage. And it's basically devoted wholeheartedly to keeping us alive. So it's it's scared, it's mad, it's in charge of making sure that we don't miss something terrible that could happen. Now, interestingly, in post-traumatic stress disorder, 
they find hypoactivity in the prefrontal cortex and hyperactivity in the amygdala, meaning that the amygdala is sort of allowed to take over. The little tantrum part of the brain is allowed to take over and just be scared and agitated all the time. And the prefrontal cortex quiets down and lets it be in charge, which is not so great. Because remember, the prefrontal cortex is in charge of modulating the amygdala saying, calm down, that was just the wind, it's not a burglar, relax, it's fine. So one thing that I think is important to think about when we're talking about anxiety and the the integrative approach to anxiety is that anxiety is not all bad. Sometimes people say, oh, I have anxiety, like I have cancer. Anxiety is not all bad. It actually helps keep us alive and keep us safe. Also, it helps us do well on tests. You know, if we weren't afraid of failing tests, we'd be a lot less likely to study. So anxiety is helpful in small quantities. And when you think about it, we are really made with a negativity bias. So imagine way back when we're living out on the plains and we look over in the tall grass and we see something brown. If we say, oh my gosh, that's probably a lion. I'm in big trouble. And then it turns out to be a gazelle. Okay, we got agitated for a minute, but turns out it's fine. If on the other hand, we look over in the tall grass and we see a brown thing and we say, oh, that's probably a gazelle. And it turns out it's a lion. Well, those people don't have descendants, right? Those people are in big trouble because they weren't anxious enough. And so I find it helpful when I'm talking to patients just to frame it this way and say, look, we we appreciate parts of your anxiety. Thank you for keeping me safe. Now we just want to turn down the volume a little bit because if it's so activated that it makes your function worse and your life worse, that's not so great, but we don't want to get rid of it completely. Now, when we think about the way the stress response works, we know that when we are activated in the stress response, like from a physical threat, someone's threatening us, all kinds of physiologic things happen. Our respiratory rate goes up, our heart rate goes up, our blood pressure goes up, our muscle tension increases, we sweat, our gut changes, and all kinds of hormonal things get activated too. The hypothalamus gets activated, which activates the pituitary, activates the adrenals, we elevate our cortisol, which can result in elevated glucose. So all kinds of things happen when we are under physical threat and our stress response gets activated. The interesting thing, though, is that when the limbic system is activated, when we have an emotional threat, meaning someone says, oh, you have cancer, or I want to break up with you, or you're fired, or none of the people like you, or anything that activates our emotions of fear or shame or upset in any way, this same same stress response gets activated. So that's important to know because we have a lot of impact, a lot of things that we can do about an overactivated limbic system. So related to this whole idea is the mind-body connection. So when our body is tense or activated or our stress response is activated, this tells the mind that there is a danger And we then feel like, oh my God, something must be wrong. Now we're afraid, even if we weren't afraid before. So they have done studies where they give people epinephrine simulating the stress response and all of a sudden they feel anxious, even though there's nothing to be anxious about. They weren't worried before, 
but their mind is reading the signals from the body, which is saying, we're under threat, something is wrong. And then it works in the opposite direction too, which is that when our muscles are relaxed, our parasympathetic nervous system is in charge. This tells the mind, chill out, we're safe, it's okay, it's okay to relax, there's no need to be hypervigilant, everything's fine. So we're looking at the regulation of the parasympathetic nervous system, the relaxation state, and the sympathetic nervous system, which is the stress state, and they are supposed to take turns, right? So that when there's an acute stress, the lion is after you, the sympathetic nervous system takes over and sets us up to run and escape and survive. And then when that's all over and we're safe, the parasympathetic nervous system is supposed to take back control and say, okay, blood pressure go down, pulse go down, muscle tension go down, everything's fine now. Now in our modern world, that's not always how it works because every single day there's stress at work or there's stress in the world or there's a pandemic or there's stress in your household. And so we don't necessarily have a lot of action of the parasympathetic nervous system, particularly if we're not pursuing relaxation exercises and activities. If we're not exercising, we're not meditating, we're not breathing, we're always up in our head about, oh my God, this is terrible and that's terrible and it's never going to work out and things are awful. Every time we do that, we activate the sympathetic nervous system. And so some people spend a whole lot of time with activated sympathetic nervous system tone and not a whole lot of time with a parasympathetic nervous system in charge. And that person may show up with all of those symptoms that we talked about, and we may say that they have anxiety, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're worrying. It means more that their body is kind of stuck in the sympathetic nervous system activated state. So one thing that we know is that slow, deep breaths stimulate the vagus nerve, which activates the parasympathetic nervous system. And so when we're trying to get the nervous system to calm itself down, that's what we want to do. We want to activate the parasympathetic nervous system. But chronic stress causes some sluggishness in the activation of the parasympathetic nervous system. And one of the ways that we can actually assess that is called heart rate variability. So normally, in normal circumstances, when we inhale, our heart rate goes up a little bit because our sympathetic nervous system gets activated a little bit. And when we exhale, our parasympathetic nervous system gets activated, so our pulse goes slightly down. So that's heart rate variability. As we breathe in, it goes up. As we breathe out, it goes down. And that's normal. That's supposed to happen. We want that to be there. So high heart rate variability is a good thing. That's a healthy functioning cardiovascular system. Low heart rate variability means that it doesn't really change. You breathe in, you breathe out, your heart rate stays the same. That means that the parasympathetic nervous system is not countering the sympathetic nervous system as well as it could. So it's an indirect measure of a person who's stuck in the sympathetic nervous system state, or in more common parlance, stuck being really stressed out. And so we can measure that with people with really easy tools that you can get over the internet. And we can also do heart rate variability biofeedback, where you can check the person's heart rate variability have them do a relaxation exercise like a guided imagery or meditation and watch how their heart rate variability changes. So some people really like that because it gives feedback like, look, it's working, you're doing the things and it's working. So that's something that I would recommend. Sometimes when someone is stuck in the sympathetic nervous system activated state, 
just a change of their physical state can make a difference. It can help the parasympathetic nervous system take over. So things like do a handstand or push against the wall very hard or manipulate something with your hands or do jumping jacks or diaphragmatic breathing or inhale some lavender on a cotton ball. So use aromatherapy, some change of state, even deep pressure, like a deep massage or deep trigger point massage can sometimes help people change their state. There was one fun study that showed that drumming actually decreased sympathetic tone, decreased stress and anxiety, which I thought was great. Movement or exercise, but any kind of movement can also be used in this way. So not only does regular exercise, of course, help decrease the stress response because our stress response is set up to to prepare us to run away from danger. So when we do exercise, it simulates that it helps us turn down our stress response. But also, you can use it as kind of emergency exercise. So for someone who's having a panic attack, or just feeling really agitated, or really anxious, or really stressed out, they can run up and down the stairs 10 times or do 20 jumping jacks um, or go for a run around the block. Sometimes that intervention can be incredibly effective and, and make it so that you don't need a benzodiazepine, which I don't recommend generally for, for chronic anxiety. Um, so emergency exercise is something you want to teach all of your patients. Another change of state that I think can be helpful is laughter. So I do tell some of my patients to find on YouTube things that they think are hilarious that make them laugh out loud and save them. And so when they're in a state, you know, an anxious, tight, stressed out state, go on purpose, watch those things so that they can laugh. Sometimes that change of state helps release people who feel stuck in the stress response. There are all kinds of other interventions, which in future episodes we'll talk more extensively about, but I just want to mention them here because they can be useful in this context. Things like neurofeedback, which is biofeedback for the brain. Things like emotional freedom technique, EFT, also called tapping. That's something that patients can use themselves, which is why I really like it, because they can teach themselves with some easy online resources. And it gives them a tool they can take with them to help manage their stress and anxiety. EMDR, which is eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, is something that you can go to a therapist for that can also help, particularly people who have had a trauma. There are tons of mind-body techniques, which we will definitely talk about in future episodes, that can be helpful for managing the stress response, decreasing anxiety, things like diaphragmatic breathing, meditation, guided imagery, prayer, yoga, meditative movement like Tai Chi and Qigong, even walking in nature, therapeutic art or music. There are many, 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 many things on that list, and we'll, we'll definitely talk about them in the future. Acupuncture can also be helpful for anxiety, as well as biofield therapies like Reiki. Reiki doesn't have a ton of high-quality evidence, but the two things that it does have evidence for are help in management of pain and anxiety. Massage can also be helpful for anxiety, and it's because of what we said before, which is when you relax the muscles, you teach the body that it's safe. When the body feels like it's safe, then the mind receives that information and feels like it is safe. So massage can be helpful sometimes for anxiety. And then there are a ton of positive psychology techniques, things like positive reframing and gratitude that all can be helpful for people who are suffering from anxiety. And we'll learn more about all of those things in the future. So that's it for today. I just wanted to talk about the overall approach to think about anxiety as not just a terrible thing, but a, a dysregulation of our safety 
processes. So your homework for this week is to either try yourself this emergency exercise idea, meaning if you get agitated or mad or stressed out or anxious, that you try some emergent exercise, run up and down the stairs, 25 jumping jacks, something like that, and see if you can notice a release of some of that stress response. Or if in this week you have no time that you feel agitated, good for you, that's great. Uh, Try to teach at least one patient about this technique. All right. Thank you so much for being a part of this community. And remember, you can't pour from an empty cup. So please be sure to take care of yourself as well as you take care of your patients. And I'll see you next week. Thank you so much for listening to the Integrative Palliative Podcast brought to you by the Institute for Integrative Palliative Medicine. If you liked what you heard, please give us a like, follow us, tell your colleagues, and join our community at www.tiipm.org. See you next week.